was Tyler mentioned, uh, nations rise and fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It stands forever. And so I want to just encourage you, keep, uh, keep your Bibles open this morning. As we are studying together, uh, I want for us to be uh, rendering out of the word what God has for us this morning, not merely what uh, may have been uh, prepared by me. And so we're just asking that God would meet us in the midst of this time. I want to uh, tell you a little bit about actually uh, Tyler and my relationship. Tyler and I and Bethany, we actually went overseas together. I've mentioned this a couple of times before, uh, but uh, on uh, our trip uh, to Pakistan in particular, we, uh, we looked online. We wanted to make sure that we were doing it in a safe way. We were flying into Islamabad and traveling through Pakistan uh, out of uh, Lahore uh, back to the United Arab Emirates. And uh, so what we did was we consulted uh, the authorities. They actually have travel advisories that you can go and read about pretty much any country on earth. You can read about what is happening there. And uh, when we were on that trip, uh, there was a, a lot of different advice that the uh, Secretary of State had for us, that the State Department had for us, but there was one in particular that we took note of, and uh, it actually pertains a little bit to Acts chapter 14. When we read there on the website that we were to avoid mosques after they were letting out, we, we thought, why is that? And upon reading, what we found out is that in Islamabad, uh, there are uh, radicalized imams in some of the uh, mosques there that will uh, stir up a lot of uh, dissension and fervor against the West, uh, in particular, Americans. And so the advice was, hey, avoid mosques. At any time, no, 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 you can go and visit these mosques. Some of them are really beautiful, and we did. We went to the Faisal Mosque there in Islamabad. It's this grand, beautiful place that uh, has been built. But they said, uh, don't, don't be in and around it whenever it's let out. If you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, some of that uh, fervor that gets stirred up could be aimed at you. A mob could be created, and you could be in danger. And so we, we decided to follow that advice. It seemed like good advice to us, and, uh, and, and that seemed like something that we should probably do. If, uh, if people are there in that mosque hearing something that stirs them up, it doesn't really matter that Pakistanis are some of the most, like, uh, noble and like humble and amazingly generous and gracious people I've ever met. If they go into a radicalized uh, mosque and they hear a word that stirs them up towards anger or in anger towards the great Satan that is America, you could be in danger. Why? There's a principle in there that's going to be very important for us this morning that what we believe. What we believe in our hearts determines what we are ruled by. What we believe in our hearts determines what we are ruled by. And if an imam is stirring up hate against Americans in the hearts of these people, they will be ruled by anger. And if you're passing by, you may, it's not likely, but you may end up in grave danger. Even saying the word mob, I know in, in our current uh, political context, uh, stirs up like a lot of other like, thoughts and emotions for us, doesn't it? Uh, we, we've uh, seen uh, mobbery 
uh, kind of get a little closer to home. It doesn't matter that uh, mobs have kind of always existed, and they certainly exist uh, pretty much everywhere in the world and everything, but here in the United States, we kind of at least tacitly felt safe from uh, people forming mobs and creating danger, stirring up uh, strife. We felt a little bit of that prior to maybe a few years ago, but now when I say the word mob, we actually have pictures and thoughts here near home that we think about. And it's frightening. If you are frightened by it, you're not alone. I think that many Americans do feel frightened at the present moment. There are these rumors of mobs possibly forming uh, in or near our capital to disrupt the uh, inauguration over the next couple weeks. And it, it causes a little bit of fear. We saw on January 6th a mob whipped up into a fervor at President Trump's uh, so-called Save America rally, and they ended up descending on the Capitol Hill, and I don't have to tell you what happened, but five people lost their lives, dozens were injured, and the, uh, the lives of our elected representatives were threatened in that moment. It was a big deal for us as a nation. Stirred up a lot of uh, different emotion, I think, in you, even though we are hundreds of miles away. It certainly sits in the midst of our hearts as being something that is frightening. In the last year, we've seen waves of mob violence sweep through cities and communities. There were thousands of protests over the last few, uh, over the last few months, uh, but 574 of them developed into riots, were significant Uh, looting and destruction of other people's property uh, occurred. 2,000 plus police officers were injured in one incident. $70 million in property damage was done. And and listen, hey, we can kind of see this on a screen and kind of keep it at an arm's distance. If your car was like ransacked, it was like $10,000, $20,000 worth of damage, something like that or whatever, and you'd be like devastated about it. In one incident, there was $70 million of people's personal property that was destroyed. That's one example out of 574 riots that occurred. So we're familiar somewhat with uh, mobs forming at this point. We see it on the evening news, and we see it maybe getting a little closer to home, and it creates, in some sense, a little bit of fear in us. What I want you to do is to know and understand that violence in these particular instances, I think, are unrighteous, contemptible, and condemnable. And I want to charge you to have nothing to do with them. And that means even giving tacit approval to them. You might be like, well, you know, uh, what if some of it was justified? What if, what, what if something happened that justified all of this stuff? What I, what I want to tell you is, is that regardless of how you feel about these mobs forming, that at least in the, these particular instances, this violence is, in my estimation, unrighteous, contemptible, condemnable, and you should have nothing to do with them. And, and, and let me be honest, while there's no uh, justification out there, I think for what we have seen in recent months, or why I don't think that there's any, we still can seek to understand what has happened, right? And this is actually going to be a helpful exercise, not for us to give tacit approval or for us to be okay with some of the things that are going on, but just simply to try to understand where people are coming from and what is happening, because remember that what we believe in our hearts, 
determines what we are ruled by. I want for you, regardless of where you come from, to imagine that you knew someone that in their bones believed that the recent election was rigged, that democracy had failed. I want you to put yourself in that person's situation and then understand why it might be that somebody thought that coming up and marching on and descending on our Capitol Hill might be justified. Again, I don't believe that there was justification. We can have a friendly conversation about that. I don't believe that that was true. But we can seek to understand why that might be. If you believe beyond a doubt that cops are killing black people and that they are supporting a systemically marginalized uh, culture or marginalizing culture, you can kind of understand why it might be that people would seek to at least protest and at most riot and be violent in return. You can, like, again, no justification, but as we seek to have some sort of empathy, sympathy, understanding, we can see why this would be. Uh, why, this would be. why? Because it is justified? No, but because what we believe in our hearts determines what we are ruled by. If, if you'll allow me, maybe even to disagree with you this morning. I don't know where in a group this size, of course, there would be lots of disagreement in the midst of different things, different feelings. I will tell you this. I'm not a politician. I'm a pastor. I don't know all that much. But I do believe that the current political protests that we see can and maybe are a good thing. But I do also believe that the political violence that we're seeing in this moment is unjustified and sinful. Will you let me say that to you this morning? I think that what we're seeing right now, unjustifiable, sinful, have nothing to do with it. Like, man, I didn't think that I was coming to a political route. Trust me, this is not a political thing. What I want for us is to know and understand what happens in the hearts of human beings and how mobs are formed because that's precisely what we're going to see or what we have already seen in the reading of Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 confirms that there's nothing new under the sun, that mobs actually formed in Jesus' day as well. In fact, Jesus was born into a like political tinderbox, as it were. There were uh, Pharisees, there were Sadducees, there were Herodians, there was this unnamed group of people that were willing to stone Pharisees if they dared touch Jesus. That's a pretty interesting group of people that just was hanging around, evidently. These are people that wouldn't have fully taken on board like who Jesus was, right? But they were willing to do something about it if the Pharisees or the scribes or the chief priests were going to lay hands on the chief priests. And we saw time and time again that Jesus was actually protected by people that didn't even know or follow Jesus, didn't, didn't know or believe exactly what he had come to do. Jesus was born into this political tinderbox where uh, John the Baptist was going around telling Jews, you need to be baptized in a baptism of repentance. All of these people that would have come into uh, Jewish faith, these proselytic uh, baptisms, as it were, people that were Greek or uh, Roman, people that were Gentile would have come into Rome, uh, I'm sorry, into uh, Jewish faith, into Israel by being baptized. And that man, John the Baptist, went around telling Israelites, you're the ones who need to become part of God's real people by a baptism of repentance. It's a pretty pretty crazy thing to be telling Jews at the time. 
And people would have divided over it. Jews would have known, like, who had gone and gotten that baptism and who hadn't. This was a political tinderbox. And all the time, there were mobs forming. We see here in Acts chapter 14 that there's a group of people that receive Paul and Barnabas, and they first form a mob to praise and worship them, and then immediately turn to stoning him. It's crazy that a mob can turn quite that quickly. And here's, here's what we're going to discover in the passage this morning, okay? Here's the core point. Here's the thing that I want to extract from the text this morning, and that is your faith will either leave you under the rule of a dangerous mob or the rule of a loving God. Dangerous mob, loving God. You will either be under mob rule or God's rule. That's what we're aiming at this morning. That's what we're going to pull out of the text. But just by way of a little bit of context this morning, Acts chapter 13, Barnabas and Saul are there with this diverse, young, energetic group of Christian leaders. You've got Simeon, Cyrene. You've got all of these people that are there in Antioch, and Gentiles have been coming into the faith. It's an exciting place to be. Likely, there it would have been a pretty comfortable place to be. And all of a sudden, these leaders here from the Holy Spirit set apart Paul, Saul, and Barnabas for the work that I have set aside for them. And what we're going to find is, we're going to find that that work was uh, uh, both a blessing and a trial. It's a blessing and a trial. They were in this nice, cozy, fruitful ministry in Antioch, and then they were sitting there worshiping alongside it, and the Holy Spirit says, set apart these men, I've called them. And what is he, where does he send them? He sends them first to Iconium to preach in a synagogue, and a great number come to faith. So the, initially, they go there to a synagogue, and they're blessed Okay, that's important to know and understand. They didn't immediately face trial and persecution. They were blessed. And here's what I'm going to tell you. It's an it's a interesting little point. They persevered in the midst of that. You're like, persevered in the midst of blessing? I'm here to tell you, it is difficult to persevere in the face of blessing. When you receive blessing, when you receive more, when uh, people like you, sometimes it's easy to start putting your trust in other things. And Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, they don't put their trust in those things. They maintain their trust in God and they persevere by continuing to preach the gospel. So they, they don't initially face any opposition for, uh, from uh, Jews, but then the Jews come in and they say, these guys are teaching heresy and we're going to leverage the rulers that we know. We're going to try to get them stoned. That's what we find in the first part of chapter 14 is that these leaders try to stone the two of them and the Spirit leads them away. After hearing about that danger and sensing the Spirit's leaning, they move into the area of Lyconia. So they move out of Iconium and they move into Lyconia. Spending a long time there and seeing fruit must have made it hard for them to leave, but they persevere in the midst of all of that. And verse 7, verse 7 says this, and they continued to preach the gospel. So whether they faced trial or whether they faced blessing, they continued to preach the gospel, and that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Let's see how they respond to this message of the gospel there in Lyconia. 
Are they going to respond the way that the people in Antioch did, the way that the Gentiles in Antioch did? Are they going to see tons of people come to faith like they did in Iconium before being rushed out of the city? Let's read it. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Okay, so the first thing that happens here is that there are lots of people that are receiving this teaching of the gospel. How are they going to respond? This, this, man, this uh, man is in the midst of an impossible situation. He's never walked before. His feet are crippled. He's never walked, and the people of that city knew about it. Why? Because at that time and in that day, the people who were in need would have been in and amongst the people. They wouldn't have been relegated to certain parts of the city. They would have been in the streets. Rich people would have walked by them every single day. The merchants would have been there hearing their calls for alms. They would have known these people. These people would have known this man. He was crippled from birth. That's an impossible situation. But Paul and uh, Barnabas, they find themselves in a pretty impossible situation too. This man has never... Uh, walked, but this is a uh, polytheistic city. There are lots of different gods that are worshipped in this city. What we would have found there if you had been in Lystra is you would have uh, seen that there were all of these temples to Zeus. In fact, we're about to hear about that. There would have been all of these fake gods around. It wasn't just a monotheistic, it wasn't an atheistic society. There were lots of gods. And that's a pretty impossible situation for Paul and Barnabas. When you add the cherry on top, you would have found out that the Lyconian language would have been a barrier for them as well. Then what we see, starting in verse 9, is he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him. In the last chapter, we saw Paul looking intently at a magician, and he had hard words for that magician. Here, Paul looks intently at this man and sees that he had faith to be made well and said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So this impossible situation gets met with a miracle. And just like Jesus healed many paralytics, just like Peter had healed the lame earlier in Acts Paul heals this man. This man was looking and listening to Paul, and Paul looks at him intently and commands him, stand, stand up, walk around. Paul sees that this man had faith to be healed. He sees that this man has capacity to believe. Remember, the things that we believe determine what we are ruled by. This man had the capacity to believe. He had faith to be healed, and he tells him, stand up. And you know what happens? He doesn't just like stretch, like get, you know, kind of like kind of get up on his feet and kind of walk around like these awkward televangelists that like, you know, you're healed. And the person's like obviously not healed and they're like trying to walk around. That's not what happens here. The man springs up in such a way that everybody that couldn't understand what Paul was saying They didn't understand what Paul was saying because of the language barrier. They're trying to figure out what these guys are on about, what this crowd had gathered around to hear. And all of a sudden, this man uh, that's been lame from birth, has been crippled in his legs, 
the man speaks to him and he springs up. It's like this physical resurrection. He's been dead on the ground and all of a sudden he just springs up and he starts walking around and the people that couldn't understand what Paul was saying now get that something different is going on here. Something different is going on. The man springs up. Why? This man believes and it puts him, even his feet, under God's loving rule. This man believes in his heart and it puts him under God's loving rule. Verse 11, and when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices and they said, the gods have come. We don't know what just happened, but these guys have extra power. The gods have come. And if you read this, it kind of makes sense to you, but you don't actually get fully what's going on here because there in Lystra, there was a myth. There was a legend that had to do with, uh, with Hermes and with Zeus. Here's what's interesting. They, verse 12 says, Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul they called Hermes. What, what do they believe about him? They believe that they're gods. Now here's, here's what had happened. There was this legend there in Lystra. And they believed that at one point in time, evidently the town had been wiped out one time. And the way that they explained that was that there were two men, Zeus and Hermes, that came into the town and they were looking for a place to stay. And nobody would let them in. Nobody would let them in. And so finally, a few people realized who they were and let them in. And then a flood came and wiped everybody out. And so here's what's actually happening here. You kind of think, oh, they're just calling them Zeus and Hermes because that's what they believed in. No, no, no. There was actually a myth. The two guys had come to town. Nobody had paid attention to them, and they had all died. That's what they thought had happened. And that's what they thought was happening again. This must be Zeus and Hermes here to test us. I don't want to die. Go get the priest. Go get the priest of Zeus' temple. Tell him to bring an ox quickly. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to make sure that we don't die today. So it wasn't just like this elation that they were feeling. It was a sense of fear. What they believed about Paul and Barnabas put them under a different kind of rule. They saw what was done, and they thought that their Greek gods had returned to possibly kill them. So this crowd believes that they're gods and they form a mob to worship them out of fear. That's what's happening here. Verse 15, join me. Paul and Barnabas don't initially understand what's happening, what's going on, why everybody seems to be responding really well. Then they see the ox coming down the road with the priest who would have probably been pretty ornately dressed, would have had some insignia that he was Zeus's guy, that he was on Zeus's team, and they would have put two and two together and they would have gone, hold up. Men, what are you doing? Why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. These things that you believe in, these things that are in your heart. You believe that we are Zeus and Hermes, that entire culture of stuff. You should turn from those things. Turn to who? Turn to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
In these past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven, the fruit of the season, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Men, why are you doing these things? We are men also. In fact, we're, we're not just men, but we're bearers of good news. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Paul is telling this crowd that they have been living under a mob rule all along. You're like, didn't they just form this mob? They just formed this mob to worship Zeus and Hermes, right? No, 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 no. They've been under mob rule all along. The culture had been telling stories and myths and legends. They had built over the course of time with great difficulty and invested their wealth in these temples to these false gods. They'd been giving their lives all along for a false narrative, a false mythology, false gods. They've been living under mob rule the whole time. That mob may not have taken to Twitter. It may not have formed at every moment and enforced these things, though I guarantee you that they did. Those myths and legends wouldn't have necessarily been borne out all the time. But this mob was enforcing a culture of idolatry. And what Paul and Barnabas came to do was tell them to turn away from those vain things that God allowed nations to walk in their own way, but they needed now to turn from those vain things. What vain things? The mob culture. You need to turn away from that and turn to the one true and living God. Paul tells them to turn from the vain things, and he also tells them to turn towards the rule of what verse 15 says is the living God who made you. What we get out of this is that this mob right here, sitting under the mob rule of their culture, not just them, you. All of us that sit under the mob rule of culture need to turn away from those vain things to the one true and living God who made you and everything and gives you food, gives you happiness, gives you rain, this is the God that you need to turn to. Stop serving the vanity of mob rule. And what happens next really demonstrates this perfectly. So all of these people that were there in Lystra must have been very confused at this point. We thought Hermes, we thought Zeus had returned to us. We were afraid that they were going to kill us, but now they're telling us that we shouldn't worship them. Is this a trick? I think verse 18 tells us that they were like concerned because only with like great pleadings did they like not sacrifice this bull. They were like, so no bull? Like you're, you're okay with not sacrificing this ox? Okay, please don't kill us. Like, that's what, they're, that's what this crowd is thinking. Verse 19 demonstrates the mob mentality perfectly. 
At one moment, these people were ready to worship them as gods, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. You remember those two places? They just came from Antioch. They just came from Iconium. They were going to stone them there. Those Jews came all this way. Now, take this on board, okay? They came to a pagan nation who was following Zeus and Hermes. The Jews came to this place and said, let's stone these Christians. That doesn't even make any sense. They didn't, say, they didn't go to like uh, Lystra and go, hey, come follow the Jewish God. These Christians are heretics. They're awful. They didn't say that. They said, hey, let's kill the Christians. <laughs> They're like leveraging the mob. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. And just to make this real for a second, we read that all the time. They just stone people. It's like, oh, it's kind of, kind of bad. It's kind of. This is like they took rocks and pummeled Paul nearly to death. This really happened. Just as real as if somebody came through that door in the back and started throwing rocks at you. That's what happened. And they were professionals at it. They did it all the time. And they thought that he was dead. So it wasn't like they like, one kid came up through a rock and they like, he fell down like he had just passed out and they were like, got him. These people would have pummeled Paul to death. They drug him outside of the city and left him there because they assumed that he was dead. The Jews hated Christianity so much that they followed him to other cities and persuaded pagans to do their dirty work. Why? Because the Jews believed in their heart. What they believed put them underneath a rule. The Jews believed with all of their heart that Paul was a blasphemer. He was a turncoat. He used to be part of us. He used to be a Pharisee of Pharisees, and now he's turned, and he's teaching these blasphemous things. And they conspired with a dangerous mob to stone him to death. And they drag him out of the city. But the believers gather around Paul, probably thinking he was dead too, right? And what do they do? They stand over him and they're just there, gathered around this man that had just been preaching the gospel to them, that had just changed their lives for forever, changed their eternal lives. And they gather around him and Paul stands up and he walks back into the city. Now, listen, the, the scripture is not specific here. But these professional stoners thought that they stoned him to death, and then believers gathered around him. These believers would have known something of at least praying for him. And then Paul, who evidently was on death's doorstep, stands up, walks back into the city that just stoned him, and then we're told the next day walks over 20 miles to the next city. I don't know that this is a resurrection kind of thing. He probably wasn't dead, but what I'm here to tell you is this is a miracle. It, it's not as obvious like when you read it at first, but what happens here is Paul is on death's doorstep. The believers gather around him and he stands up. Didn't we just read about this? We just read about this. Paul looking intently at this man, this crippled man, He's never walked before. Stand up. Walk around. It's a miracle. It's a resurrection kind of miracle. And here, Paul 
by the power of the Spirit, is equipped to do the same thing. It's a miracle. Paul is saved. And what does he do? He continues to preach. Why? We've been going through it this whole time. It's because Paul believes something in his heart. Paul believes that the good news of Jesus is going to change everything and that he must not succumb to mob rule, but he has to live under God's loving rule. What Paul believes changes everything for him. The rulers, the authorities that whip up mobs against him are nothing to him. Why? Because he believes the right things. They deceived and conspired. They said, uh, we're going to stone him, and they did. What does this sound like? It sounds like the man who with palm branches waving rides a cult of a donkey into a city with people shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna! They didn't understand either. Just like these people in Lystra, Zeus and Hermes are here. Jerusalem, many years ago, Hosanna, our political savior is here and only in a few days' time. Crucify. Crucify this man. Do you see how dangerous mobs are? These uh, men and women and children who had gathered around Jesus and said, or I'm sorry, gathered around Paul and there said, here is Hermes. Here he is. He's come back. I'm afraid of him. But I just want to make sure that we're okay. And then in a moment later, they're stoning him to death. It just took a little persuasion by the leaders. I wonder if you're seeing some of these same things play out in our culture today. It's not like these mobs that are forming, like have these deep intellectual roots that they just know what's going on. There's people inciting them to do things and teaching them wicked things that are in their heart, and they're willing to do whatever it takes. Because what they've done is they've believed something in their hearts, and they've placed themselves under the rule of a mob. But Jesus did the same thing. Crucify him. Crucify him. I want you to see this morning that Jesus was killed by mob violence, by mob rule. They hanged him on a cross. And what was his response? was his response to take to Twitter, to Facebook, to shout down, to lose friends, to tell your dad off at Thanksgiving. Was it to do that? Was that what, was that what Jesus... No, he's hanging on a tree, being crucified by a mob, and what are his words? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Do you believe the right things? Because if you do not believe the right things, if you do not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, come here living a perfect life, the life that we should have lived, the life that never submitted to a mob in his heart, and then dying on a death, lovingly submitting to the Father at the hands of a mob, dying the death that we should have died, and then gloriously rising, rising out of a tomb, not just up off of a mat to walk on his previously crippled feet, not just walking back into a city, raised to everlasting life, never to die again. That's not what Paul did. 
That's what Jesus did. Jesus was murdered by a mob. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Paul, though stoned, is not primarily submitted to the rule of a mob, but he is under God's loving rule, and that causes him to walk straight back into that city, straight to the city that he had come from and fled originally, back to the other city that was going to stone him, and then back to this city that did stone him. Why? Because he believed the right things, and he had to preach the gospel. What he believed was that he was set apart to do something by the Holy Spirit and nothing would hinder him. And I wonder this morning if you are living under the fearful and dangerous rule of a mob. My guess is that you know that in your heart of hearts. Not me, not me but you feel it. You feel it every time that you have a conversation with that one friend. You feel it every time that you see that person's post on Facebook, and you're just ruled by it. You you can't get it out of your mind. I can't believe that they think that thing. You're being ruled by a mob. That's right. That's exactly what I believe, too. And like these algorithms are just meant to feed us the same things that we believe you're being controlled by a mob. And it isn't even sentient. It's an algorithm. Do we believe the right things? Church, do we believe that Jesus is the one true God? Do we believe in his life and in his death and his everlasting life that we get to participate in? Because if we do, we would have nothing to do with mob rule we would set ourselves underneath God's kind and loving and everlasting rule. That's what we would do. Everyone, everyone, you think I'm not, everyone is living under the rule of something. Let me ask you this, what do you believe? If you want to know what you believe, just trace back the things that you've been afraid of over the last few weeks, over the last few months, over the last year. Trace those things back. What is it that you are afraid of? Our nation is living under the rule of mobs, and it has always been. We're just starting to see it in our public squares now. They're taking competing truths from these different sides, and they're demanding, rather than discussion and compromise, to vilify and to detest What they believe demands an incendiary and restless response. They do not want peace and order. They want mob rule. They want it for you. They want it for you. They do not want you to live underneath a kind king in Jesus. They want you to live in fear. That's what they want for you, and that's why you feel it. Man, that's heavy. Our nation is living under the rule of mobs. It has been. We're just now starting to see them. But not just nationally, personally. We are living under what Philippians 2 would call a crooked and twisted generation. Let me ask you this. What are you angry about? What are you angry about? Do you believe mightily that the election was uh, stolen? 
Do you kind of a little bit like sympathize with the people that stormed into the capital? Like for many of us, we're like, not Viking man. I'm not there. Like that's not, he's not my guy. Like that's not who I'm following. Are you close enough to him? Have you made friends with some of these people? Do you digest like some of their propaganda? Have you mingled your faith in politics where you can't see daylight between Trump and Jesus? Have you made friends with a political party that pretends, pretends, pretends to contend for marriage and family and your values? Because if Jesus, in your mind, wears a red hat, you must repent and live rather than under the mob rule of Fox News and like sentimental Americana, you must live under the one true and living God. His mercy is deep. His mercy is wide. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins in Jesus. Now live underneath his loving rule. But maybe that you're just like... I'm not there. I'm not wearing a friggin' red hat. That's not who I am. It's a, I'm, we're, I'm so far away from that. Maybe your anger is different. Maybe your anger is different. Do you believe mightily that uh, police officers are the tip of the spear of a racist nation and you sympathize with people who are burning down our cities? Well, I've got a question for you too. Have you mingled your faith in political protestations where you can't even distinguish between what your faith is in Jesus and the political actions that you are taking on social media? Have you made friends with a political party that, that carries with it distinctly unbiblical views on sexuality and gender? If you have, you're like, golly, this is rough. If you have, you must repent for living under the mob rule of Twitter and Facebook and the like, and submit to the one true creator of all things. His grace is eternally abounding, and he is immensely capable of making you righteous. Live under the righteous rule of a king, not a dangerous mob. These beliefs will leave you under the rule of a dangerous mob, and who who, who can withstand it? It's aimed at your disintegration and your destruction. Follow King Jesus. Francis Schaeffer asked this, how then shall we live as Republicans or Democrats, pro protesters or revolutionaries? The answer is no. If we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave like Paul did, then we are to offer our lives as living sacrifices, not choosing to live underneath other mobs. We're to live as living sacrifices, just like Paul, walking back into the city, going and declaring the gospel. When we experience God's blessing, we must persevere in our faith, no distractions. When we experience persecution and trials like Jesus, then we must persevere, no whining. Paul writes to the Philippians to encourage them to live under God's rule, and he says this in uh, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. 
I'm sorry, starting in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's like, ah, Lee, you know, without, with, without those things, that's like my entire life. What would I do if I wasn't like grumbling? Like, what would we do? Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain. There's that word again. That I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Remember, this is the man who just got stoned to death. That I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, even if I'm to be killed, is what he's saying, my blood shed. Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here's what, very briefly, very briefly, Here's what I see coming out of this. I see no vain things for God's people, no mob rule, only God's rule. And what that means is that we're to be content in our circumstances. No grumbling, no dissension. If you have those things, confess them. He's faithful and just to forgive you them. Work with other people, say, man, I've just been grumbling. I've been stirring up dissension. We are to be blameless and innocent. We're to live righteous lives. We are to live as God's children. Where? Where does Philippians say? In this world. Jesus prays for us and he says, don't take them out of the world. They're exactly where they need to be. Just unlike this world. We're to live as God's children in this world. No pretending, no seclusion. Walk back into the city. Here's my favorite one. We're to shine as lights in the world. That's what Paul says. We're, we're to be luminaries. Beloved, we're to be luminaries. Don't be dark like the world, living underneath some shadow of some mob somewhere. Live as a luminary. Live as light. We are to hold fast, finally, to the word of life. What you believe really matters, beloved. It really matters. What you believe in your heart really matters. This is my last point. Everything in your life right now is trying to get you to believe something about something. Everything. Every TV show that you watch is trying to convince you something about what sexuality looks like and what you deserve. It's trying to teach you something about what gender is. Is trying to teach you uh, what or how you should feel about the president of our nat nation or the future president of our nation or the party or Viking man or whatever. Everything in your life is trying to shape you, like mold you, form you. Uh, it's desiring, whether it even knows it or not, is trying to evangelize something to you. Don't live under mob rule. God's rule is so much better. It's just so much better. It's so freeing just to go, the, this party, this party, none of it matters because I am under King Jesus. Why? Because Jesus isn't wearing some red hat, and he's not on the line of protest. He's wearing a crown, and he's seated in heaven. Let's pray. God and Father, you sent your son Jesus to us, and he is king of all things. He is king of all kings, Lord of all lords. There is nothing that hasn't been placed underneath his righteous rule. 
He uses the nations as a footstool. And whether this nation rises or falls, nothing, nothing will impact Jesus' kingdom. It is established. It is finished, Father. And you did it. You sent him. You were the one that did it. And we magnify and we glorify your name. And so as we take communion, Father, as we sing songs, as we give to you, as we take a meal, as we feast together, Father, we hope all of it honors and glorifies your name. Praise be to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.